What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and I like to explore the biology of animals, humans, and everyone in between. Today on the show, we're talking about animals who are back from the dead. Animals who were previously thought to be gone from the face of the earth get rediscovered. Reports of these animals' extinction have been greatly exaggerated. I'm joined today by a very special guest who has traveled the world looking for quote-unquote extinct creatures. Then we'll talk about some animals who truly are extinct, we think, and other creatures who we hope to bring back through mad science. Discover this and more as we answer the age-old question, is that a giant tooth in your face pouch or are you just happy to see me? we know when an animal goes extinct? The truth is, we don't. Obviously, we'd probably notice if a giant ground sloth was hiding out in the Hollywood Hills, but sometimes animals can be more elusive. In dense forests, remote wilderness, deep in the oceans lurk animals we thought were long dead, but may still be kicking. Take for instance the Wandawai tree kangaroo of Indonesia, who hadn't been sighted for 90 years and was presumed extinct. Naturalist Michael Smith, who was looking for rare flowers, happened upon this find and snapped a photo of the reddish-brown dog-sized tree-dwelling marsupial with a cute koala-like nose and a thick fluffy tail. Because this adorable critter is believed to be restricted to a small remote area of montane forests in New Guinea and may have a small population, it's no wonder it has gone unnoticed for so long. Stumbling upon the rarest thought-to-be-extinct creatures of the world may be an incredible happy accident, but how do you become a biodiversity private detective? tracking down ghosts of species past. Joining me to answer that question is outdoor adventurer, biologist, and host of the Animal Planet show Extinct or Alive, Forrest Galante. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I am incredibly excited to have you on. Good. I'm excited to be here. So first, I just want to give people an understanding of what you do. What's your show about? What's your 
mission as you travel the world getting into all sorts of interesting situations? Yeah, sure thing. So first of all, I'm not a typical TV person by any means. In fact, I have very little interest in TV. I am a wildlife biologist and a tracker. Um, I grew up in the southern African bush of Zimbabwe. I spent my childhood working with rare and endangered wildlife, then went to school for that, and then continued to pursue that until I landed in the job I'm in now, which is traveling the world, searching for animals that have been deemed extinct, I believe wrongfully. And we've had some major successes and we have incredible adventures all along the way. So what started your interest in biology and biodiversity? I know you had a really interesting childhood. I did, yeah. So I was the son of safari business owners in Zimbabwe, Africa. Um, I grew up barefoot on the land in the bush. Um, you know, to this day, I remember my first time putting on a pair of shoes, which I, <laughs> I don't know how many kids can say that. I was about six. Um, and so, yeah, I've just always been surrounded by wildlife. And, you know, you know that feeling when you're a little kid and, and you flip over a log and you see an earthworm. And you're like, oh, my God, look at that earthworm. It's so cool. It's so interesting. It's slimy mm-hmm. and slithery. Well, most people grow out of that. I grew worse. I grew into it, you know, where I wanted to know everything about that earthworm. What makes it tick? Where does it go once it disappears from under the log? Who's eating it? Who's it eating? You know, so on and so forth. And so I just decided at a very young age that I would always pursue wildlife. I didn't know it would land me in the career I'm in now or have the specialty that it does, but I've just always been fascinated by wild animals. So why did you decide to look into animals who are thought to be extinct or are near extinct? It's a great question. I mean, you know, growing up where I grew up in Zimbabwe, because the country went through such terrible political turmoil, I first-handedly saw animals disappearing uh, from the bush that I had loved, and I knew how horrific it was um, on on a mass scale, you know, seeing them disappear. And I also saw how elusive and clever they could be. Where I grew up on our farm, we used to have a leopard that would come and frequent and uh, actually steal some of our livestock. But everyone in our immediate area said leopards hadn't been in that part of Zimbabwe for, for 30 years. However, I caught multiple glimpses of this leopard. So I knew beyond any doubt that this animal was, you know, <laughs> the world champ of hide and seek, you know, yeah. a, a master of cryptic camouflage and that there was a leopard there. And I think little instances like that have always driven this fascination. But I think on a bigger scale, you know, it the world's a big place and there's a lot of places to hide. And just because one scientist or one group of scientists haven't seen something in a long time doesn't necessarily mean it's extinct. Yeah, when you think about the scale of our Earth, especially when you look at the uh, forests and oceans, it's there's a lot of places that we haven't gotten our grubby little hands on <laughs> yet. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, thankfully. I mean, this is a less impressive anecdote, but I have a fish tank from my childhood. I've always loved taking care of fish. And my mom was pretty sure since the last time I had bought any fish was when I was in high school that all the fish were dead. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, we've got this empty fish tank just full of gross water. Uh, I think we're going to get rid of it. I said, well, you know, empty it out. I'll take the fish tank to my new place and I'll restart up the fish tank. And so she did that and I took it. And the bottom was kind of, it wasn't completely dry. It was a little murky. Mm -hmm. And I started emptying out some of the rocks to clean it out. And there are these two coolie loaches, which mm-hmm. is a type of fish. I know exactly what they are. Yep, yep. just still in the... In weaving the, around the weaving gravel. Around. It was like, <laughs> these must be ancient, first right. of all, like over a decade old. Right. And they survived for, I think, a month without any food and with about two inches of water, maybe one inch of water. <laughs> it, so it's, I believe it. I believe if a coolie loach can do it, right. 
I think most animals can do it. <laughs> and think of that scale. You know, you're talking about a a two foot long a fish, fish tank. tank. Yeah, yes, in, yes. in twenty plain gallon sight. fish tank. Exactly. In plain sight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, just imagine. I don't know, twenty billion of those fish tanks, and that's right. about the Earth, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think you know the thing is what we do and i say we because i have to credit my team as well and myself is it's more than just about the animal certainly nobody wants to downplay the severity of extinction it's incredibly topical and it's incredibly important and it's sad but it, <laughs> it's uh it's more than just about those two loaches in the bottom of the tank or about the tree kangaroo that you mentioned or some of the animals that we work on it's about showing the world and the reason i love the media of television that i get to work in it's about showing the world these incredible ecosystems and habitats that do still exist and all of the animals that occupy them currently and, and why they're worth saving. I mean, I really enjoyed that. I watched the show and I love, first of all, I love the scene where your camp gets invaded by bees. I'm sure you didn't, <laughs> I'm glad I'm you sure loved you it. didn't enjoy it at the time. Uh, I'm sorry for enjoying your suffering, but it is pretty astounding. I love that they decided to make a home out of one of your crew members' shirts just mm -hmm. overnight. They mm -hmm. they had almost uh, completely colonized that yep. shirt. Uh, it's it's incredible because it, nature sometimes moves so quickly. Uh, they just felt right at home as you guys were sleeping. <laughs> Obviously, a bit of a problem for you. You yes. got stung up quite a bit. Uh, and also, just as you were you were looking for the Dracula monkey. Mm -hmm. uh, that's also called the Miller's Grizzled Linger. Correct. And you just happened upon the that incredible snake. Uh, what yep. was that called? The mangrove cat snake. Yes, mm -hmm. this huge snake, beautiful, bright yellow and black stripes. Uh, venomous, but not really that. Uh, it doesn't necessarily correct. Uh, rear fanged. Yes. Rear fanged, yes. so hard to inject the venom, right. but still not something you want to. Not be something by. you want to like tease right. too much. Right, exactly right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you're you're just like, well, oh, here's the snake. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm like a kid in some regards, and what I mean by that is I I just can't help myself. Um, even though I'm out there searching for a Miller's grizzled langer and seeing, you know, a, a nine, eight, nine foot long mangrove cat snake has nothing to do with finding my the monkey. Yeah. That's a species, and there's a lot of these species that I've wanted to encounter in the wild my entire life. I've seen them in the pet trade. I've read about them in books. You know, I'm very familiar with them. And so to be able to see one and work with it and feel it and and encounter it in its natural habitat is just I, I lose all concept of everything else going yes. on, and I'm so smitten by this gorgeous creature in front of me that mm -hmm. I kind of forget why I'm even there. Yeah, I, I can relate, although. I'm not going around holding snakes, <laughs> but I do love to torture my friends by I find a cool insect and I pick it up and it's like, look at this huge insect. Great. And they're like, please go away. Stop putting that in my face. <laughs> well, my friends are the opposite. They're like, oh, yeah, let me see it next. Put it in my face. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been your like, you're probably pretty used to seeing, uh, I mean, not I'm sure you don't get tired of it, but you're, you've grown accustomed to seeing pretty incredible sights. But what's something that has really caught you off guard on your adventures, like your most jaw-dropping uh, sighting or adventure? Hmm, good question. You know, there's a lot, and I, I think it depends on what, uh, what capacity you're speaking to. Uh, some of we, I've seen horrific things that have shocked me to my core, such as witnessing the grind where they slaughter whales in the Faroe Islands. And at the same time, the Faroe Islands is one of the most strikingly beautiful scenic places. It, 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 it's beyond anything in Avatar or Star Wars or anything that our imagination can even make up. It is so incredibly beautiful. 
And that's in one location, I had both of those experiences. And, and that's just, you know, that's a micro example of what happens regularly. I go to these amazing places and sometimes I see just the worst habitat destruction or wildlife cruelty. And yet they're just such, there's such beauty within them still. So it's, it's hard to really define one. I mean, there are, there are many places that are meh, you know, not that beautiful, not that great. And then some of them that are just so striking. I think that's a a big theme that we keep touching on on this show, which is we often escape into these fantasy worlds like Star Wars Mm -hmm. and and Avatar. And I think it's important to remember that we actually do live in a planet that has things that are just as, if not more spectacular as the, you know, million dollar CGI that is on your screen. I agree. And so one of my favorite moments actually was, I just loved the creativity of how you put, you nailed a dog brush to a tree (laughs) to capture uh, fur. fur. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, that came across as something where it's, it wouldn't have ever occurred to me like, oh yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a simple kind of little fur trap to get, get some, uh, genetic material. Uh, are there any examples of like when you've had to get really creative or kind of improv a bit to be able to find an animal or Oh my goodness, yes. Oh my goodness. I don't even know where to begin. So one of the fun things about what we do is there is no formula for it, right? If you, there's no handbook on how to find extinct animals because (laughs) until I started doing it, it wasn't a thing. Right. Um, And so, you know, we have the luxury of, yes, we follow scientific protocols, but we also incorporate hunting technologies, military-grade thermal optics and drones, our own imagination and creativity, things like the dog brushes from Petco, which I've been carrying around in that pelican for about three years, knowing that at some point I'm going to need them for a fur trap, and then it all clicked in Borneo. But, um, you know, a great a great example of something that, that worked, that was totally a concoction of our imagination, but, you know, grounded in scientific merit, was the meat tree. Mm. Okay, and let me explain the meat tree. So we're in Zanzibar. Uh, off the eastern coast of Africa, looking for a leopard deemed extinct 25 years prior. And this creature hasn't been seen. However, locals are reporting that it could still be there. In fact, they're even saying the witch doctors use them to do evil bidding. There's a whole bunch of lore and culture associated. And we're striking out left and right. You know, sometimes I get little clues that this animal could still be here because, you know, this thing's happening or that thing's happening. But in this instance, we're literally just striking out. We're not getting anything. So because Zanzibar is such a densely populated island, for a change, we weren't just staying in tents in the middle of the bush the whole time. We were actually going to a hotel at night. So my producer and I are sitting in our hotel room feeling super deflated. We haven't had any successes with regards to finding this cat whatsoever. And he's telling me the story about how his cat is just obsessed with this like little toy tree that he has, right? Where he's got all these toys dangling from a piece of driftwood or something. Yeah, like those, those cat trees that exactly. they get to run around and scratch and they have little dingly balls and things. Exactly. Yeah. So I think he's describing this to me and all of a sudden I turned to him and I go, Patrick, meat tree. He says, what the hell's a meat tree for us? And I go, so let's make a giant cat toy out of meat. You know, we know that leopards and all cats for that uh, matter love these dangly toys, right? We know they have a decent sense of smell, not the best, but good. They have great visual responses. Let's go to the, let's go to the market tomorrow morning. Let's buy 200 pounds of goat, (laughs) beef, you know, any meat that we can get and go back into Jozani, the national forest where we've been working and make a make a giant cat toy. Right. And we did this, right? And it's it's the most ridiculous 
if I told my advisors going, you know, my old academic advisors going into the field that I was going to make a meat tree to find an extinct leopard, they, I think they'd kick me out of school. <laughs> but anyway, we go and we buy this meat and we go back into Josani and we start hanging all these dangly bits of goat head and foot and meat and everything on this fallen over tree. And sure enough, two days later, we checked trail cameras and we uncovered footage of a leopard that hasn't been seen in 25 years. That's amazing. <laughs> now... I do want to caution our listeners not to go to www.meattree.com. That's not going to be what you're hoping. It's not going to be a leopard playing. Um, but that is that is incredible. I love how big cats are basically, they are literally just big cats. Exactly right. Uh, quote, unquote, domesticated cats. The only reason they don't kill us is they're small. Uh, <laughs> exactly right. And they are the same behaviors. They are they love to play, and it's, it's pretty incredible. So I want to talk about a couple of the animals that that were thought to be extinct that you've rediscovered. So first, did you want to talk about the uh, Fernandina tortoise that I think you found under a pile of leaves? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Yeah, with pleasure. You want me to just tell the story? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, you know, when we, as I said, what we do is travel the world looking for evidence that animals believed extinct may still be out there. The reason that we do this, the overall arcing reason, is for conservation, of course. Once an animal is declared extinct all funding dries up for it, right? Who's going to pay to preserve something that doesn't exist any longer? So we do this in the hopes that if we find something, we can preserve not just the species and bring it back from the brink, but also the habitat in which it exists. So that's my my little spiel pitch on what we do. But I say all that because when it came to the Fernandina Island tortoise, we had an animal that wasn't necessarily checking all of our boxes. And what I mean by that is we 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 have a checklist of variables, right? Who's seeing the animal? When was it declared extinct? How many were there? Who's reporting it? Is there sufficient habitat? And a lot of these questions were coming up with no's. You know, this is an animal that lives on the second most active volcano in the world. Only one other single individual of this species has ever been found 114 years ago. Uh, you know, people live in the Galapagos and there's, they have literally the world's best tortoise scientists there. Like, there's no reason that they shouldn't be able to find this animal. So it wasn't checking all of the boxes that lead us to go on an expedition. But that being said, I had a colleague at the Turtle Conservancy and he told me he'd seen bite marks in a cactus. And basically what I'm getting at is my gut instinct, which goes against scientific protocol, said to go look for this animal, this Fernandina Island tortoise. And it was hell. (laughs) It was absolutely hellish. I mean, the island was boiling hot. There was heat radiating up from under the ground because it's an active volcano. It's literally on the equator. The average daytime temperatures were around 122 degrees. Oh, so a little balmy. A little balmy, yeah. <laughs> uh, the the terrain was five foot tall shards of glass, so to speak, from lava mm. rock. You know, we went through three pairs of boots like in a couple days each. <laughs> um, it was boiling hot. There was no vegetation, nowhere to hide. Anyway, long story short, we get to this island, middle of nowhere, Galapagos, the most remote island in the Galapagos. We climb up said volcano, and in the far, far distance, we see a single isolated green patch that looks like if there's anywhere that life could be on this island, it's in this green patch that doesn't look like the rest of the moonscape that is this boiling hot island. And we travel over lava rock for seven hours or so, and we finally get to this green patch, k- killing ourselves. I mean, if you see the episode, I'm, I'm bright red. I'm so sunburned. Everybody's got heat and sunstroke. Uh, it's boiling. You know, we're running out of water. You name it. I feel like an island that's made out of boiling glass is like not super friendly to people. No. And no one goes there for that reason. Uh, And, of course, the Galapagos has very strict rules. But um, 
Anyway, we get to this little pocket of green vegetation, and after days on this island, after 114 years since anyone's found a specimen of this species, uh, we find the first piece of evidence, which is tortoise scat, aka tortoise poop. And the only other animal, large animal on the island are iguanas, and their scat looks very different. They're long and narrow, and this is round and tortoise Is that the happiest you've ever been to see poop? Yes, hands down. <laughs> and, and in the episode, I pick it up, and I'm like, I'm like, have this ridiculous smile on my face, and I'm like elated and like shouting about how happy I am at this poop in my hand. Um, but, you know, less than an hour later, we find what looks like an active bedding site where an animal's actually dug into the sand to try and cool down a little bit. And five minutes after that, hiding under one of the few bushes on the entire island uh, is this absolutely incredible, large, old female Galapagos tortoise. That's incredible. I, I mean, it's, I think that really points to one of the big reasons that there are a lot of animals we think are extinct, but may still be alive is just how inaccessible they are. Absolutely you have to right. hike across burning glass, right. uh, get heat stroke. Yep. Uh, and, and then you finally, like, find an oasis of poop and yep. then a turtle. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you mentioned the Wonderboy tree kangaroo earlier. Uh, you know, the, the gentleman who discovered that, he spent two or three weeks hacking through bamboo forest to get up into that habitat. Yeah. Again, talking about how impenetrable it is. It took them two weeks just to get into the correct habitat. And, and he, he wasn't was, even looking yeah, for Yeah, he it. was looking for, for rare plants. Birds. Yeah. Or plants. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Plants. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. But he knew when he saw it, it's like, that's not supposed to be here. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I want to talk a little bit about uh, a few animals who were thought to be extinct or were near extinct, and then they were rediscovered. Sure. And they're really incredible. So uh, first is the Pinocchio lizard, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of my favorite lizards. They're also known as the Pinocchio anole or mm -hmm. anolis proboscis. Yeah. Um, and I'm betting people are going to guess why they're called the Pinocchio. <laughs> <laughs> so they're from the mountainous forests of Ecuador near uh, Mindo. Mm -hmm. uh, this is within the Tumbes uh, Choco Magdalena biodiversity hotspot. That's like it's super rich, very rich, very, mm -hmm. it's similar, similar in biodiversity to the Amazon. Exactly right. And it's got a huge range of habitats as well. There's dry, wet moist forests, forests of a, like varying degrees of right. moisture. <laughs> right. um, and it was thought to be extinct since uh, 1953. And they're a small lizard. They're about two to three inches long. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of animals that, because they're small and they blend into their environment well, it's easy to think that they're extinct because, right. you know, they look, they're about the size of a leaf. Right. So they're really beautiful. They're green and orange. They have these enormously long, orange, pointy proboscises sprouting from the tip of its nose. It looks like a, it looks like a hard horn, like mm -hmm. it would be a rhino horn, but it's actually really squishy. It's fleshy. It's yes. a fleshy appendage. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And so originally it was thought that it was like for sword fighting between males, but it's too. It seems like it's probably too squishy to actually be uh, a weapon of any kind. Correct. The generally accepted theory now is that it's uh, like a peacock's tail. Yes. For Sexual selection. Exactly. Yeah. Like, look, look at my giant nose horn. Exactly. How <laughs> sexy is that? <laughs> it's like it's like a squishy unicorn, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and it since its discovery in 1953, very few, if any, sightings have occurred. Right. Um, and it was thought to be extinct for over 40 years. And then it was... Uh, rediscovered in 2005 by a group of bird watchers. So right. again, another right. group who, in a way, does that like make you 
really annoyed when people uh, just accidentally happen upon a a thought to be extinct creature when you're like trekking through boiling glass to find. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. The, the short answer is no. The more that people can discover and promote conservation, the better. It doesn't need to be me. I don't care who does it. Um, you know, I think that's a perfect example of knowledge is power, right? Here's a group of bird watchers, and I'm guessing one of them either snapped. I don't know the story of the actual discovery or at least the details of it, but I'm guessing one of them either snapped a photo or one of them had some herpetological knowledge and was like, wow, look at what this is. This is insane, right? And that led to this massive discovery, which to me is just phenomenal. Like, I, you, you, I'll tell you why that doesn't upset me, because now I don't have to go to Ecuador <laughs> and climb up the mountain forest to look for this lizard. And I'm sure, you know, you know about it and, and it's it's now global news. So yes. it, it's great. I don't yes. care who finds them as long as we're finding them and yes, protecting them. Exactly. No, I, I figured that was the case. But it is it is a, it's like really just happened upon just this. Just stumbled guy. upon it. Yeah, there's a guy who was climbing Lord Howie Island yeah. and found this giant stick insect the same way. He was just a climber and was like, That's a cool rock and he's then like, found he's this like extinct trying insect. to hold on to a twig. And it's like, whoa, this just is... <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> um, they obviously thought it was notable. So they took a photo, sent it to a herpetologist, and the herpetologist probably like... Freaked out. Freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, a team of researchers surveyed the area to find the lizards. And they're really difficult to f- spot during the day. So they waited until night. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, like a lot of uh, amphibians and reptiles, their skin kind of changes mm-hmm. uh uh, following like diurnal patterns yep. and so they kind of turn this palish ghostly color and as they shone their lights up into the trees they saw these pale little ghostly lizards hanging out at the tips of the branches and and literally hanging out i don't know if yeah. you know this but anoles when they sleep at night they actually go to the very end of a blade of grass or a leaf and hang oh, so that's that incredible. nothing can can basically climb out and reach them, right? Like if a snake's trying to come out and reach them, it'll fall because it's yes. right at the very end of a thin piece Paratrip of grass. down, or, yeah. Exactly. And so uh, literally hanging like stalactites, mites. Wait, which are the ones that come down? Tights got to be tight on the ceiling. That's Is that right. Or, or maybe uh, stalagmites got to be mighty to hang on the ceiling. <laughs> it's know. a useless mnemonic device. Yeah, <laughs> but regardless, you get my point. They're all, they're hanging out of right. these trees. And that's, you know, I've done, I've done Cuban anole work and some other anole work. Yeah. And that's how you find them. You find them at night hanging. Yeah. And in this case, this ghostly glistening white. I mean, it's imagine amazing. that discovery. It sounds like a fairy tale. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. They were obviously very excited. And so to find out what they did during the day, like scientists often are creepy, they stalked them. That's what we do. (laughs) (laughs) And so they found that the lizards like to hang out high in the canopy during the day and they move extremely slowly. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense that we didn't realize they were still around because they are extremely well camouflaged. They're basically moving like a sloth. In a way, they're kind of similar to chameleons mm-hmm. in terms of how they manage to remain unseen where they're very right. slow moving they have those that very ponderous kind of movement uh, and they blend in really well it's their uh, only defense yes. being cryptic is their only defense exactly uh and so another uh really cool uh horny thought to be extinct <laughs> animal that was found in ecuador is the horned marsupial frog ah, yes. uh, which is a nocturnal amphibian a beautiful strange looking frog uh and it's got a certain uh 
behavior that is even more freaky than its appearance. Uh, it's also found in the Tumbes Choco Magdalena biodiversity hotspot. This is a great area mm -hmm. for rediscovering thought to be extinct animals. Uh, in Western Ecuador, it's in a tropical rainforest habitat. It's a little frog about like two to three inches, would That's you right. say? Yep. It has spiky horns above each eye flap, kind of mm -hmm. like a weird mascara or like clown makeup where it's like yeah. these two little triangles just like... They look like big eyelashes. Yes, yeah. yes. Maybe it's Mabeline. Maybe it's uh, <laughs> the marsupial frog. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> and they have these beautiful gold eyes. Uh, they're very, they're gorgeous looking. Absolutely. Um, it has, it's like it hadn't been seen for over a decade and it had been thought to be extinct or near extinction. And then biologists were trekking through the forest, I think, again, on kind of an unrelated exploration. Mm -hmm. um, but I think these were herpetologists, uh, mm -hmm. and they heard an unfamiliar frog call, uh, which is said to kind of sound like a champagne cork being pulled out. So oh, kind I haven't of a, heard that. That's yeah, like a sort of chirping, <laughs> like, you know, like that squeaking sound yep, as you pull uh -huh. it out. And they looked up, and they saw a horned frog just sitting on a palm leaf. Right. And they started jumping around of and course. screaming. As, you, as one does. <laughs> Trust me, As one you does. Do. Yeah. I know, I've seen it. <laughs> so uh, they actually found, as they explored more, they found a few individuals, mm -hmm. uh, including a pregnant female, mm -hmm. which was really exciting because that indicates they have a at least somewhat stable population. Right. They're reproducing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of pregnant females, this is one of the most incredible things about this uh, is their method of pregnancy. Right. So uh, a lot of frogs have really interesting reproduction strategies in terms of protecting the tadpoles and the froglets. Uh, and these frogs have a pouch on their back Correct. like a kangaroo, like a backwards frog kangaroo. Yep. And that's why they're <laughs> called the marsupial frog, despite not even being in the mammal family. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> these eggs are inside a flap of skin on their back uh, and they will pop out of the pouch as froglets rather than tadpoles. So they look like little tiny fully formed frogs. Mm -hmm. um, they look When you look at a pregnant female, it looks like a peapod almost like you know these, right. these lumps mm -hmm. uh or like it's got a really a translucent bad... yes yeah. yes it's pretty it's a little creepy actually <laughs> <laughs> um and uh inside the pouch the embryos have these mushroom-like external gills that breathe through gas exchange mm -hmm. on the pouch wall which sounds very science fictiony um <laughs> As many amphibian larvae yes, do, axolotls, yes. uh, yeah. small salamandrids. They have that that the very feathery, uh, exactly interesting right. gill structure, and mm -hmm. so it's 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 interesting because axolotls are a permanent juvenile stage of that that salamander, Correct. and so uh, but we don't get to see. It, it, it's cool to see the axolotl because we often don't get to see like the sort of. Um, these interesting developmental stages for long in these animals. And especially at that size. Yes. You know, sometimes we can find, like, even here where we live in California, you can go into some of our streams and right. find the rough-skinned newt larva, and they look just like a perfect axolotl, but they're, you have to look Teeny at them with the microscope. Yes. Yeah. Once they pop out, they're just these little tiny cute frogs, and mm -hmm. they sometimes uh, hang out for a little bit on their mother's back right after being born. So right. you'll see this... Uh, Mother, maybe with a slightly loose <laughs> skin on her back. <laughs> yeah, a little stretched out. And then out. Yeah. a bunch of these little froglets just hanging out. It's a little bit of body horror with the lumpy back, mm -hmm. but the product is adorable. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and, and you know what's so wonderful about that discovery, Katie, is uh, 
amphibians worldwide are facing a huge threat with chytrid fungus um, to the point that they're likely the the group of animals most at risk of mass extinction. And so, you know, to hear, oh, a frog species has gone extinct, it's almost an expectation now. And it's not necessarily, it is at the hands of man, but it's, it's due to this chytrid fungus. And so to find that an animal like that marsupial horned frog is still in existence and either resistant to chytrid fungus or hasn't been exposed to it when either way we assume it's one or the other. We assume it has either been exposed or, or is, is obviously not um, able to tolerate the chytrid fungus is a fantastic thing because it helps with our amphibian diversity, which is so struggling currently. Yeah, and as we'll talk about, we're going to talk about the um, gastric brooding frog in mm-hmm. a little bit, and that is another victim of a uh, pathogenic fungus. Correct. Uh, and it, especially in this area, the uh, Tumbes Choco Magdalena ecoregion is uh, suffering a lot of biodiversity loss. A ton. Yeah. Um, there, it's a lot of it. There is obviously man-made problems. So, like uh, deforestation, climate change is all really affecting it. And it, I think, it's not as. I mean, we know, and it's a good thing that we know about the Amazon and the importance of the Amazon. But I think this region isn't as discussed as being like. Here's another uh, huge tract of rainforest oh, that yeah. is incredibly important holds a lot of really incredible animals and it's disappearing really quickly uh so i think it's great that we have like when you have on the show showing people these Mm -hmm. areas and i think it's also good to give people hope that we're not too far gone like things even though we are in danger of losing a lot of animals some it's not it's not a hopeless cause like we can we can do things now to, absolutely yeah i i hate ecophobia which is a term you know coined for the thing that we basically see every day which is where we wake up and see the headline this has gone extinct or you know we're all going to die because of global warming or the sea surface levels are rising and, and the maldives are going underwater you know we, we see all these things every day and that's ecophobia and first of all no one wants to ris- listen or read that you know they right. don't want to listen to it nobody wants to hear how the world is coming to an end. It's it's miserable, and we've become callous to it as well. Yes. We've heard it so much that we just brush it off. You know, yeah. who, who cares if the rhinos are going extinct? I read that three days ago. You know, so I personally, and, and there's a number of scientists that fall in this vein of thought, cannot stand that ecophobia thing. So we just throw it out all compl- altogether. It's not that it's not warranted. It's it's important and significant, and there is major problems. But let's show the good side of conservation. Let's show the wins. Let's show the animals we're discussing, you know, the Lazarus taxon that have literally come back from the dead. And if these creatures are capable of hanging on by a thread, you know, how much inspiration and hope does that give for the planet? Yeah, I think pointing out the wins, pointing out the things that people are doing that are helping is really important because I, I do get the sense that people think, oh, we're doomed anyways. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of cynicism to it too, where it's like, well, if we're doomed anyways, why even bother why trying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, why care? Why? And it's really not black and white. It's not going to be like an apocalyptic event, like, oh, we'll all be wiped out in like right. a week or something and then that'll be it. It'll be over. It's, it's a, it's a, what we decide to do now as right. a species is right. going to affect quality of life on sort of a sliding scale of good or bad. And it exactly all right. depends on what we decide to do now. And I think so that's why I think it's like it's so important to like say like, no, we're not we're not doomed. Mm-hmm. In fact, things that we thought were doomed may not be. There's a chance. Right. We just have to really uh care about it at this point. And as you said, it's 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 a, a decision that needs to be made on a species level by us human beings. You know, it's it's not about 
one person doing conservation perfectly or doing sustainability perfectly. It's about everybody doing it imperfectly. Yeah, we talked about that on our our Amazon episode where I think that people can get fatigued if you feel like, well, I can't be, you know, I still use plastic. I still do this thing. But, you know, I I try to be vegetarian, but sometimes I drink milk or something. And it's like, well, you don't have to be perfect. Just do what you can do. And if everyone does that, we're in great shape. Yeah. And you limit yourself, you know, think about it this way. If you're not going to drive to work and at work is where you save the planet, who's going to do it right you know what i mean you got to get there like you know there's it's it's everybody has to do a little bit imperfectly is the way to make the change yeah if if a frog can give birth out of its back (laughs) you can do something to help the environment and you don't have to i mean look these frogs give birth out of their backs but they don't kill themselves doing it amen to that i'm trying to make a stretched metaphor about the the marsupial frog and i feel like it's working it's working Once we've found the surviving members of a species on the brink of extinction, is there a way to bring them back? There have been a handful of successful conservation stories. Take, for instance, the noble West Indian manatee. These beautiful buoyant creatures, once thought to be mermaids by scurvy-riddled mariners, had decreased in number to only a few hundred off the coast of Florida and were endangered worldwide. But conservation efforts, coupled with improvements made to their environment, brought them back. They have now been upgraded to merely three threatened, and there are over 13,000 mermaids, or manatees, worldwide. And one of my favorite animals, the California condor, was almost a victim of an anthropogenic, human-caused extinction due to poaching, lead poisoning, pesticide poisoning, and habitat destruction. The California condor is a large vulture with a wingspan of up to 9 feet, the largest wingspan of any bird in North America. They have a fluffy black body and a bright pink naked head, all the better to dive into without getting messy. They have long lifespans, almost comparable to a human, and they're highly social, even engaging in play behavior. They're very devoted and particular parents. They only raise a single chick at a time, making them especially vulnerable to depopulation. California condors were once on the brink of extinction. There were only 22 individual condors remaining, so the California condor captive breeding program began. These individuals were captured and bred. In order to increase the rate of breeding, they took advantage of the condor laying two eggs at once. Typically, only one chick will be raised to maturity. Conservationists retrieved the other egg and raised the chick with a realistic condor puppet so they wouldn't think that humans are their mommies. Then, slowly, as their numbers grew, they were released back into the wild. There are now hundreds of California condors with over 200 flying free in the wild. When we return, we'll talk about some animals who are most definitely, assuredly, probably extinct for now. We'll be right back. Traveling is stressful, and the worst part for me is having to lug around a big clunky suitcase through an airport. So I was beyond excited when Away Suitcases sent me their carry-on suitcase. My old suitcase only rolled in one direction, so I would wipe out while trying to bank a corner to get to the gate before all the seats next to power sockets were taken so I could charge my dang phone! Away Suitcases are designed much more thoughtfully. They have four wheels that spin in 360 degrees, allowing me to easily glide my suitcase behind me. It's got a lightweight and durable outer shell like a helpful armadillo that's full 
of all my clothes. I got my carry-on with the ejectable battery so I can recharge my phone. Anyways, I'm in love with my new suitcase. It's easy to tote around, it's designed to last a lifetime, and it's cute. I think I'm gonna name him Casey. He makes my traveling a lot less of a headache. He's easy to pack all my baggage in, and yep, I think I'm best friends with my luggage. For listeners of Creature Feature, Away is offering $20 off your suitcase. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash creature and use promo code creature during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash creature and use promo code creature during checkout. Some animals who went extinct long ago were terrifying and, well, pretty metal. The Purosaurus was a genus of South American crocodile that included many species of giant crocs, the largest of which being Sarcosuus, that lived around 100 million years ago. This big boy weighed in at 4 tons and reached up to 30 feet in length. These are the stretch limos of crocodiles. Speaking of length, the Titanoboa, an extinct species of snakes that slithered upon the earth about 60 million years ago, grew up to 42 feet long, so they could fit about seven average-sized adult men in their stomachs. You may be grateful that these giant monsters have gone extinct, or I don't know, maybe you want to fill a park up with them and allow children to roam around unsupervised. Either way, in today's world, the animals who go extinct are typically no threat to humans. Instead, they're far from it. They're priceless wonders and could, in fact, have helped mankind. So, before I get into some of the more contemporary extinct animals, I do want to talk about uh, Thylacosmulus atrox, Mm -hmm. the uh, extinct saber-toothed Marsupial. marsupial, yeah. Mm-hmm. The it's a metallarian saber-toothed cat. I yep. think, yeah. So uh, it's which, a mars- marsupial lion. Is right. kind of what it's known as. Yeah, yeah, and there it's like a it's like a sister sort of group to actual true marsupials. The the metallarian saber-toothed cat really sounds like a Star Wars name to sure me. Sure does. Sure <laughs> does. Um, so it's more closely related to marsupials like kangaroos and koalas right. than it is to placentals, which is the rest of us, basically, um, except for monotremes like echidnas and exactly platypus. Right. Um, but it is not actually a feline, because a feline is a placental. Um, it is a uh, sparsodonta, which is Greek meaning tearing teeth, mm-hmm. which is great. I, I, love, I love it when they just go all in for their super metal <laughs> uh, gritty names. So the resemblance to, it, it does look like a saber-toothed tiger. Absolutely. And that's but, where the name comes from. Exactly. Yeah. But this is an example of convergent evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were about the size of a jaguar. Uh, they had really big heads relative to their body, which I suppose in some frame of mind is scary, but it's also really doofy looking to <laughs> it me. Is, it is. <laughs> kind of like a big bobble head. Uh-huh. Um, and maybe the doofiest part of all, which was huge fang pockets on their lower jaw. Mm-hmm. So they basically got kind of the Jay Leno look going where they've got this giant jaw. Uh, They had these huge two front canines. So very similar to the saber-toothed tiger, like huge blade-like, looked like mouth scythes coming down. Um, And uh, But they had a sheath on the lower jaw. It was this bony protrusion called the symphysial flange. Um, And this was, uh, it would like, it, it was a jaw part that was between the two teeth. So the teeth would come down. Um, like imagine you had like two huge vampire teeth and a long jaw in between them to support them, but your lips didn't close over them. Right. You'd look about as doofy as <laughs> the uh, thylacosmilis. Uh, their fangs would self-sharpen by rubbing against the lower canines, which mm-hmm. is a handy feature. Mm-hmm. Um, and my favorite part about them is uh, it's 
sort of speculated that they probably didn't have a really crushing jaw strength. So jaguars and a lot of big cats today have really powerful jaws. They can almost like, they can strangle an animal with their jaws. They can crush a skull with their jaws. Um, But with this guy, they think that maybe he would come up behind the prey, ambush predator, and then like executioner style stab them. (laughs) They had really powerful, strong necks to support that huge head. And just kind of like an an executioner's axe, they have this huge axe like head and would just like chop down onto the uh, animal's neck. Uh, they're, look, they're fa- they're fantastic. I think, like you said, it's a perfect example of convergent evolution. You know, Australia is completely isolated with all of the marsupials that it has there, and so it's developed creatures that we re- we tie parallels to, such as the wolf. Right? We have the thylacine, the marsupial wolf, and this this big cat, which is really not a cat at all. It's another marsupial, but it looks like what we know as a cat. And that's how these creatures get named, even though they have, and they do have similar morphological variations, you know, in the way they move and the size of their feet and their tails for balance and things like that. But they have absolutely no relationship to cats and wolves as we know it. Yeah, which I think is, it's spooky and awe-inspiring that nature was just so determined to have a big cat-like animal with giant executioner jaws that it happened yeah it happened multiple times exactly multiple times (laughs) in different places around the world without them ever connecting yeah so speaking of this uh this really interesting extinct animal uh would you like to talk a little bit about the thylacine the tasmanian tiger that uh you've been hunting for (laughs) not literally hunting yes yes you if you found one you would not kill it (laughs) correct that's for sure yeah so the thylacine you know known as the tasmanian tiger or in some cases the marsupial wolf again it's an animal that we've drawn parallels to uh to animals that we know of, but it's really none of those things. It's much more closely related to a kangaroo. It is a true marsupial. It had a had a pouch. It's not a placental mammal, and it's an incredible looking creature. It had a canine like head, um, large jaws that could open very very wide, similar to a snake's. Um, it had stripes a bit like a tiger on its back, which is where it gets the name from, and used its tail like a rudder, the same way a kangaroo does for balance. So just. You know, we were talking earlier about Star Wars-type creatures. This is a perfect example of one. Yeah, or like a Dr. Seuss animal. Totally. I remember seeing these pictures as a kid as an example of how sad extinction is. And it, probably a lot of listeners have seen it, too. It looks it's like a long, it looks like a long dog, almost like a cross between a weasel and a dog and a right. tiger. Right. And it's quite it's bigger than a dog. It's a what would you say? It's about the size of a wolf. It's, no, it's maybe it's a little like coyote size. Coyote sized. Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they are they're really fabulous looking. They look like you kind of took a bunch of animals, scrambled their genetics up, and popped out this really interesting exactly. uh, guy. So exactly, and so you you're you're hoping maybe that they're not completely gone. Yeah. So look, the animal was deemed extinct in 1936. Uh, the last one died in a zoo in Hobart, Tasmania. This animal is very interesting, and I'll explain why. They're kind of the poster child for. Um, they're the poster child for Lazarus taxon. What a Lazarus taxon is, an animal coming back from the dead, even though they've never been proven to come back from the dead. And so the thylacine had an immense range all the way from Papua New Guinea all the way down to Tasmania. Now, they were driven to extinction in, as far as we know anyway, Papua New Guinea, Australia, and eventually, first. And the reason being when humans settled those regions, they brought with them dingoes, dogs. 
and the dingoes outcompeted the thylacine and, and wiped them out. They were stronger, better, more adaptable predators for the habitat. But dingoes never made it to Tasmania. So they lasted in Tasmania up into the 30s, like I said, which is where Westerners were, you know, settling and cattle ranching and, and, and seeing them regularly, so much so that they were placed a bounty on the thylacine's head um, to exterminate them so that they would stop killing sheep. Now, this is very... Rude. Yeah, extremely, <laughs> extremely rude and extremely sad and extremely controversial because there have actually never been proven that the thylacine actually even took down any sheep. Oh, come on, it people. Was, yeah, <laughs> it, was mostly, it was mostly understood, and we only figured this out later, that it was packs of feral dogs running around mm. at night killing people's sheep that belonged to the ranchers and then the thylacine so falsely, were being falsely accused of taking down sheep. And this was in, was this in the 1800s or early 1900s? 1900s, 1900s yeah. 1900s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh, here's this strange animal we've never seen before. Better kill Let's it. Let's kill it, yeah. <laughs> and so um, to, to get to your question, <laughs> this is funny really because I've been on, I've probably spent a total of three and a half, four months in the bush of Northern Australia where sightings have been reported and Tasmania where sightings have been reported. And I've never had any conclusive evidence that the animal is still there. And yet I'm completely convinced that it is. In very small numbers, likely functionally extinct, meaning might still be there but is on its way out because of the numbers unless intervention takes place. Um, And I'm just completely convinced. So I've spent a lot of time there. I've been in Tasmania. It's a very wild place with a low population. I've been in Northern Australia, very wild place with a low population density, however, very heavily impacted by invasive species, which is a bit of a problem. And uh, my next expedition to look for this exact species will take me to Papua New Guinea. Wow. Wow. Excellent. I mean, your gut has proven you correct before, so I wouldn't, I'm really glad that you're optimistic about it. I think that's important because otherwise we would just never look anymore for these animals. I think it's, you've got to keep, you've got to keep a certain amount of faith to, uh, you do to keep looking. Yeah. Yeah. It's in a sense, it's like playing the lottery, right? Like you don't, you can't expect to win because your odds are one in a zillion, mm-hmm. but you still have to play. <laughs> and, um, you know, what's interesting about the thylacine, and, and this is where kind of the cycle is self-perpetuating, so you have to be, be careful in, with these feedback loops. But there are so many disconnected similarities coming being reported from people. Oh, I saw it at this time, at night, it looked like this, it moved like this, it did this. And these people don't know each other that are reporting it, that keep popping up over and over again, even so much so that the Australian government just released, uh, I think two weeks ago, released a whole list of, of sightings that they had been keeping confidential, that you just kind of have to believe. But it is a feedback loop, right? Because it's just like the Black Panther in the southeastern United States or, or Bigfoot up in Oregon. Once people start hearing about it and imagining it, of course, then it creates more likelihood for someone to think that they've seen that creature and report it. So it's a very delicate balance that you have to play and you have to take all of those anecdotal observations with a grain of salt. Well, what's interesting about that is human observation is not infallible. So that's for sure. We (laughs) do a lot. Our brains do a lot of interpretation. We think our eyes are sort of uh, impartial judges of the world around us. Not true. Our brains, it has to go through our brains, which can often be dumb or at least prejudiced. So what's interesting to me is a lot of sort of supernatural sightings, like say um, UFOs and stuff is, or, or 
interpretation of, say, sleep paralysis is very culturally dependent. Mm -hmm. So in one culture with sleep paralysis, we'll think it's UFOs, and that happens after War of the Worlds, Mm -hmm. and we have this influence from our culture. In another culture, it's ghosts, like, say, in, like, Victorian England, sleep paralysis may have been. And so sleep paralysis, for those who don't know, it's like when you're sleeping, your sleep cycle is disturbed. I actually get it occasionally. It's fun. Um, but it, it And so you w- kind of half wake up. So some of your sensory information is getting in. Maybe you can see the room. Maybe you're kind of hallucinating, but your body can't move. Right. And often a, a characteristic is you feel this menacing presence and something sitting on your chest, which is what I get. Mm-hmm. So I think like a, for me, as someone who listens to true crime, I think a serial killer is sitting on me. <laughs> it's, it's holding um, you down. Right, yeah. exactly. But depending on your cultural environment, you're going to interpret it as maybe aliens, maybe as demons, Mm -hmm. maybe as a witch, maybe as ghosts. So it is a tricky thing with citing, say, an animal where uh, we we had an episode where we talked about Mothman, where we think maybe it was a sandhill crane, maybe it was an owl. But uh, people see these things and now they think they're Mothman because that's the mythos of the area. So, uh, but then when it comes to actual real animals like the Tasmanian tiger, maybe the cultural influence of, oh, maybe this exists. So maybe you see an animal who's similar and then you kind of interpret it as like, oh, is that a stripe? Is it not? Uh, Undeniably. Right. Undeniably. You see a mangy fox, you see see a dingo with a limp, you know, anything. And and I don't want to get too off topic, but so much so that, that, it's so culturally significant and impacts our observational ideas of what we're seeing that I think a lot of people don't realize, and I'll probably get angry people from listening to this, that the Black Panther that we, you know, make movies about, have mm-hmm. as high school mascots, doesn't exist in the United States. It's never been proven to. Right. In the Southeast, if you go to Florida and talk to people that hang out in the swamps, they'll tell you there's Black Panthers around. They've never been proven to exist. We've never seen a melanistic mountain lion, which is the species of panther running around the Southeast, it's never been proven to exist. Right. And black panthers are not, it's not a s- distinct species. It's a It's a melanistic version of like a, of, of a panther, basically. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And and dependent on where you are, because there are black leopards, there are black jaguars. Right. But what we have natively in the United States is the mountain lion, and there's never been a black right. mountain lion. Right. But yeah, it is, it's, it's got to be a real complication for trying to find out where an animal is based on scattered sightings. But on the other hand, a lot of times... If scientists don't actually listen to locals or local legends or yep. what's considered to be a mythos, you'll miss out on important information that actually can lead you to a discovery. Well, and everything's grounded in something, right? And yeah. what I mean by that is even if one out of a thousand reported thylacine sightings is accurate, that means one's accurate, yeah. right? <laughs> and so, you know, on my work, I two gentlemen that I've worked with, one um, in Tasmania was a a wildlife scientist. So this isn't, you know, some crackpot hillbilly. This is a guy <laughs> whose entire career, like mine, is based off of observing wild animals and identifying them correctly. He told me, looked me dead in the eye and said, I'm telling you 10, 15 years ago, I forget the timeline, I saw a thylacine, right? I know every single animal that lives in Tasmania. I've worked on them for 25 years. I, this is what I saw. I don't have proof, but I saw it. You have to take that observational report a little bit more seriously than the guy who's like, yeah, you know, I left the pub at 3 a.m. and I was driving <laughs> driving down this windy road and I saw one's butt go into the bushes. And another instance uh, up in northern Australia was a gentleman who was a, a ecotourism guide. So literally, same thing. All he did for a career 
was take people to see wildlife in northern Australia. And he told me, you know, clear as day, 25 yards away, I watched my dog play with three of them. Literally, my dog got up, he growled, the hair on his neck stood up. I saw these sets of eyes and was like, what on earth is that? Shone my light, my dog ran over there and was running amongst them, playing with them, and then they moved off. He's like, I couldn't get the camera out in time, blah, blah. This was five years ago. You know, both these sightings, both these people were the opposite of what you'd expect. They were extremely reluctant to tell me this information at risk of being called kooks. Yeah, they didn't want to be considered crackpots. Exactly. Yeah. And, and and that, to me, holds so much more weight than the guy that's jumping up and down going, I got to tell you about my sighting. I got to tell you about my sighting. You know, that's someone right. who wants recognition or fame or, or has an ulterior motive. These guys were hiding that they had seen yes. these animals at fear of being called crazy. And they themselves could barely believe that they'd seen yeah. it. It's good to be skeptical. It's good not to be completely credulous and believe everything you hear. But I think it's also good to not always dismiss information that's unexpected. So, you know, if you're thinking, okay, this seems like it shouldn't be around anymore. We know we do have evidence that animals who we have thought to be extinct and even larger animals like the like the the waterway like mm-hmm. is a pretty it's you know it's a comparably sized animal yeah um so it's not just the little tiny insects that of course those pop in and out of existence all the time but yeah it, it is it's possible so the, why, tor- the yeah. tortoise we found weighed 40 pounds right it's a big animal <laughs> it's not a small animal um and you know it's what, what my team and i do and for anybody that's listening that has any interesting information we take every single piece of it and compile it. You know, we have spreadsheet upon spreadsheet and we put every bit of data in. Whether your, you know, the person reaching out to me seems credible or not, we still take it into account and we place it on a map where we, at least the closest near uh, area that we believe the sighting came from was, regardless of what the extinct species is. So that when, you know, say the next time comes around for me to go search for the thylacine in Tasmania, well, it turns out since that first episode of me searching for the Tasmanian tiger in, I don't know, what was it, 2014 aired, I've now received 700 new reports of them. Well, it turns out, you know, 650 of them are in a completely new area and they're mm. densely clustered in one zone. Well, that tells me where to at least begin my search. Yeah, that reminds me of like you you might know about the the iNaturalist movement where it's getting just regular people. Yeah, citizen scientists. Citizen scientists. Mm-hmm. I do not live in anywhere near nature, basically, live dead in the city. <laughs> I saw an uh, alligator lizard uh, mating Great. on my walk. Great. Took a photo of it, put it online. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's it's something that I think is, a, especially with these rare animals, you know, um, I talked to uh, Dr. Greg Polly. He's one of the herpetologists at the museum, and he got a report of this uh, lizard that is not indigenous, uh, that that like someone just took a photo of and it turned out to be sort of a briefly invasive species that didn't it didn't actually I think that they didn't find any more specimens Mm -hmm. but it was like a little pocket of these lizards that reproduced and lived for a little while in this one little neighborhood so it's you you never know what you're gonna find and I think that it's great that yeah of course some people are gonna be pounding back white claws and going like yeah I saw (laughs) I saw a Bigfoot right right. (laughs) but you know often it's it's interesting information and um, by the way, that's how that uh, you you said you watched our expedition to Borneo, where we yes. uncovered the evidence of the Miller's grizzled langer. Um, that's how that came about. And what I mean by that is there was a research group working in this region of Borneo where the Miller's grizzled langer had never historically been reported to be. And one of the I think he was a grad student, maybe he was an undergraduate student, 
took a photo of a monkey that he's like, that's a cool, weird looking monkey and showed it to his primatologist professor, my friend Stephanie Svehar. And Stephanie goes, oh my God, that's a Miller's grizzled langer. And she starts langer. screaming. And- <laughs> exactly. And, and back to the cycle of crazy biologists jumping around, getting excited. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, I think it's, and I think that kind of ties into people feeling optimistic and empowered about nature rather than feeling paralyzed by, oh, everything's going extinct. Like, no, right. you can help too by Absolutely. like keeping your eyes open. 100%. So now I want to talk about a, a species that has gone extinct more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the gastric brooding frog. Yes, and so this, sad. It is, this is really sad. I This is, again, one of my favorite animals. Um, so these were a little frog with they had, like the uh, marsupial frog, they had an amazing breeding strategy, mm-hmm. one of the most incredible ones, I think, in the world. They lived in the mountains of Queensland, Australia. Um, there were two species. There were southern and northern, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the southern was about, it was a little smaller. It was like about two inches long, and the northern was maybe three inches long. They're, they're both pretty small, yeah. Very <laughs> tiny, cute, cute, adorable frogs. Very like much uh, so. I'm a big, I think most frogs are adorable. These are some of the most adorable. They just have these big bug eyes. They're right. really cute. Their calls were described as sounding like, Ehm, ehm. <laughs> it's like, it's the cutest sounding thing. Like they say it had an uptick at the end, like, ehm. <laughs> I just want to hear you do yeah, that sound if yeah. you want that. It's just spelled phonetically, so I'm just literally You're reading guessing. what it's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it kept its eggs in its stomach, uh, and they would, sort of like the marsupial frog, they would develop into froglets, and she, the uh, female would give live birth essentially because they would vomit puke up, up their puke up their babies mm-hmm. which were now fully developed little froglets yep. up to 25 at a time mm-hmm. which is insane it's incredible so they lay eggs um and then it would swallow its eggs and then that would keep them safe as they're developing so in order to prevent getting digested the eggs were covered in prostaglandin which is a chemical that would signal the mom to stop producing gastric acid in her stomach and then once they developed into the tadpoles, they'd hatch and just continue developing right. in her in stomach. Her stomach yeah. yeah, and uh, the their gills were covered in mucus that would protect them from stomach acid. But to be frank, we don't know everything about how this worked. Right. We didn't get a chance to study them as long as would have been helpful. And it's a new biological process yes. that we're on. We're we really don't understand not just on this species level, but. On any level, yeah. how exactly that it works? Right, exactly. Uh, and so the gastric brooding frog mom would stop eating. Mm-hmm. We don't know how we don't, she managed we don't know to the do gestation that. Period either. Um, and her stomach would expand, so her lungs would collapse under the pressure of all of these babies, and then she would breathe through her skin, which is a trick that amphibians right. can do. But uh, then she would exorcist style vomit up her babies through what's called propulsive vomiting which is the cutest and yet more most horrifying like russian nesting doll frog situation as you can imagine this is an incredible way to give birth uh and very sadly they went extinct about 30 years ago so i don't think we know exactly the single cause for why they went extinct we do know that um, human encroachment into their habitat 
probably didn't help. So like logging, uh, feral pigs, uh, weeds, and water flow problems were all thought to have contributed to their extinction, but also the pathogenic fungus, which is responsible for the deaths of many, many adorable amphibians. (laughs) Indeed. It makes me sad because I think... I mean, as someone whose stomach is not always great at (laughs) (laughs) functioning, so like getting stomach aches, it's like, hey, if even if their story isn't doesn't capture your affection, which I think it should, and you don't want them back just because they're amazing, it's we could have learned a lot from them for human medicine. So, um, stomach cancer, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, ulcers, all these things that have to do with the hormone causing like overproduction of stomach acid, all these, we we could have learned so much from them. Uh, Undeniably. And I, you know, I think (laughs) I don't want to get too grandiose, but I think there's something we can still learn from them. And that is that, you know, we made that mistake Mm -hmm. in a time and place where perhaps we didn't realize we were making it. You know, I don't think we knew that they were going extinct when they went extinct 30 years ago. But we do know that now about some of the species that we are driving towards extinction. And we can correct before it's too late. You know, let's learn from this exact species and our mistake that we made. You know, the fact that we've missed out on what could be a a world-changing discovery being, you know, the gastric brooding frog stomach anatomy. Let's learn from that and realize that there's a lot we don't know and that things are worth saving because you never know what can come of it. You know how Greta Thunberg says we're entering a mass extinction event? Well, she's not wrong. A scientific analysis published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that in recent decades there has been a global massive loss of wildlife that they call, quote, a biological annihilation. Well, not to scare you too much. So, not only are animals going extinct at faster rates, but even animals not yet considered endangered are losing their populations at much faster rates. So, this sounds kind of psychopathic to ask, but why should we care? Obviously, if you listen to the show, you probably care just for the sake of animals, biodiversity, and the protection of the planet. But say, hypothetically, there are people out there who don't care about the environment. (laughs) Who would be like that? I don't know. (laughs) But honestly, the more selfish you are, the more alarmed you should be about the current crisis. When humans go extinct, it's very likely that life on Earth will continue. Life, uh, finds a way, even in the wake of devastating natural disasters. Will it be the same kind of life we have now? Probably not. I mean, look at what happened after the mass extinction of dinosaurs. Of course, if we nuke the entire planet, the only kind of life that might come back for a while may be creepy, crawly extremophiles and bacteria, but life in some form will probably march on. It's just that it's up to us to decide whether we humans want to continue on, or if we're happy to drive ourselves to extinction while dragging plenty of other animals down with us. But like we've talked about before, we actually have a choice in whether we want to do this. We're not helpless victims of our circumstance. When we return, we'll talk about bringing animals back from the dead using mad science. Is this a good thing or is this a, quote, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should situation. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker 
retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. So clones, let's talk about cloning. Even if we drive animals to extinction, can't we just bring them back through the miracle of science? Well, as you probably know from the acclaimed documentary Jurassic Park, the answer is a bit more complicated. First, the science of bringing species back from the dead is complex. You need a viable DNA sample from a specimen, and you need a related, compatible surrogate species egg in which to implant the DNA. But even if you have all the ingredients necessary, it's still difficult to create a viable embryo. Gene splicing is another technique with similar challenges, and reverse engineering an extinct animal from their closest living relatives through selective breeding is possible, though it won't really, quote, bring the original species back to life, but create a sort of facsimile. Even once we reach the point where we can bring species back from preserved specimens or mosquitoes trapped in amber, should we? Is dead sometimes better? Well, there are arguments for and against de-extinction. Proponents cite the importance many extinct species have environmentally and for biodiversity. Skeptics warns that this may have unintended consequences. Loss of habitat and changes in the environment make reintroduction of dead species a challenge and could potentially lead to unforeseen negative interactions with other living species. We could also, I don't know, accidentally bring back dangerous retroviruses hiding in extinct animal genomes. There's also the argument that spending money to resurrect extinct creatures means less money to help save animals that are not quite yet extinct, but soon could be. So let's take a look at some of this weird science, and then we'll talk to Forrest about his non-laboratory approach to finding nearly extinct creatures. So... 
I got to kind of make a just a, a catch-all statement. I'm not a, an expert on this. Sure. So I can only make a judgment on whether it's good or not to bring right. back species based on my opinion, which is take it for what it's worth. Sure. And it's a really complicated moral and ethical issue that uh, I think is... I don't know if there's one really distinct answer of whether it's good or bad. I think it's very contextual, right. uh, but it's not. It's not like, oh, obviously it's good to to use science to bring something back because there could be, as any time when we try to do things as humans, we try to kind of maybe play God a little bit. Sometimes sure. we can do go really wrong. Um, so remember our friend, the gastric brooding frog? How could you forget? Hmm. Uh, a team of researchers at the University of New South Wales is trying to bring it back from extinction. So they've inserted the DNA of the southern gastric brooding frog into the egg of a barred frog, which is a very close relative. They were able to successfully grow it into an embryo, but then it self-terminated, so they weren't able to develop it further. It's uh, This is called, as we mentioned, de-extinction or resurrection biology, which sounds a lot more <laughs> magical, <laughs> which is, you know, literally bringing an animal back from the dead. Right. I think, I think what's interesting is I kind of fall sort of uh, somewhere on the edge of like, I don't know if like just bringing back a mammoth is such a good idea because the world has changed so drastically. Right. I don't know if it's even fair to the mammoth because right. where would you put him? Right. He, as we know, elephants are highly social, highly intelligent. Would a mammoth be able to have a family with elephants or would it feel weird and lonely <laughs> because it's the only hairy elephant around? Right. Um, but, you know, I have heard interestingly compelling arguments about like say the passenger pigeon which is a somewhat recently extinct mm -hmm. bird that um had a lot of impact on the environment right. um and is a candidate for it because we do have living relatives Very and we close have living relatives so many specimens of it mm -hmm. there's plenty of dna mm -hmm. the passenger pigeon went extinct in 1914 about um, it's called an anthropogenic extinction. So mm -hmm. that's when we, we screwed it up, basically. Correct. Humans, <laughs> humans were the jerks who did it. The pigeons look a little bit like uh, mourning doves, though they're not related at all. Um, the males had a reddish-orangey-pink chest and blue-gray backs. Um, they, uh, so Revive and Restore is a conservation organization whose mission statement is to, quote, apply biotechnology to biodiversity challenges. They say that the passenger pigeons are a good candidate as we have plenty of specimens, we've got its closest relative, and that they would be useful to bring back. They say it would help conserve Eastern America's woodlands. And to kind of see what their side of the argument is, we kind of have to look at the history of passenger pigeons and what they are. So passenger pigeons used to be so numerous in Eastern U.S. that they would completely black out the sky. Right. And if you can imagine, you can imagine bird flocks and with the murmurations, which mm -hmm. is where they kind of shift direction and you see this sort of like weird strobing effect of the birds. It must have been really spectacular to see. Unless you were, you know, like a like a 18th century, 19th century guy who's like, ah, oh, these these birds are pests, <laughs> <laughs> which I think there were. Yeah, so they they were considered agricultural pests because a flock of them could 
to be fair, they were good at destroying crops mm -hmm. because there were so many of them. But I mean, they kind of came first, so. <laughs> and we hunted them to we extinction. We did. We That's hunted them. That's what's amazing. That something yes. in the numbered in the billions can be wiped out so quickly. Exactly. So they were highly social. So mm -hmm. that's why they had such enormous flocks. And they were had kind of a pigeony utopia because they wouldn't really fight with each other. There was maybe some arguments, but there was very little violence. They were very pro-social, kind of like there's a lot of bat species now mm -hmm. that have these huge flocks. Big colonies. Big, yeah. big colonies, even with like different kind of species all hanging out and they're mm -hmm pretty chill. It's mm -hmm. kind of amazing. Uh, this is part of the reason they have, may have been so big is a survival technique called predator saturation. Mm -hmm. And that's where there's just too, too many, many of to you. Pick from. Too yeah. many to pick from. Your chance of being one out of like a flock of 10,000 is pretty, pretty small. Well, it's about one in 10,000. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So they were doing really well until humans, specifically European settlers, because for uh, 20,000 years, their population was stable in the U.S., which included the time that Native Americans lived and hunted the pigeons, right. but they just didn't hunt them in the volume that European settlers did. Well, and European settlers began hunting them as commercial food. Yes, yeah. yes, especially once the railroads came in exactly. and we could ship huge amounts of dead birds. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, they were very easy targets because they were not used to being shot at with guns right. and they their whole strategy was just like there's lots of us and we're pretty chill you know you cannot possibly kill all of us right. and then uh, in America we, <laughs> we were like in America we can do anything That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's sad they were almost not even considered game fowl because they were so easy to shoot mm -hmm. so easy to catch these poor little sweeties uh, they could be caught in vast numbers with large nets just draped across a few trees exactly. and they would just fly right in and you'd get like several hundred of them at a time stool pigeons so this is an interesting <laughs> etymology lesson so stool pigeons were pigeons who had their eyes sewn shut uh, so they were blind. Really nice thing to do. Yeah. Um, and then when a flock of these pigeons would fly by, they were shoved off the stool so it looked like they were they found some food on the ground. And they're pecking around right, on exactly. the ground. Exactly. Yeah. And that was used as bait because the other, the other pigeons, being highly social, look at the cue of this pigeon and they're like, oh, there must be food there. Mm -hmm. um, and then they'd flock down and then we'd kill all of them. And so that's where the term stool pigeon comes from as being sort of like someone who's going to lead you to the rest of the flock. Right. Hunters would even use alcohol-soaked grain to drug the birds. Real, real nice, <laughs> nice move there. And in the 19th century, the passenger pigeon hunting reached a fever pitch as railroads allowed for mass commercial transportation of dead pigeons. Just cars and cars of trains chock full of dead pigeons millions of them yeah one hunter actually was alleged to have shipped three million dead birds to the city like on his own which is insane it's awful the gall the <laughs> yeah. just the just like yep this seems like an okay thing to do right. the mass pigeon slaughter um people weren't too concerned about it they thought they were pests they thought it was impossible to kill them all but yeah we did it, we did it. <laughs> yep and interestingly enough, there's actually evidence to support that the passenger pigeon was around, the last pair was around about 20 years after their declared extinction, yes. by the way. Yes, yeah. Um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, by the way, let me preface this by saying I'm no expert of de-extinction either. Right. You know, I'm a tracker and a wildlife biologist. I'm a field guy. Yeah, I'm what not... you do is very fundamentally different. Exactly. That being said, I certainly have um, a stance on it. And I think it's a stance, I think it's a very clear middle ground stance that I imagine most people would take 
And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Do I think that we should be creating Jurassic Park and bringing back mammoths and dinosaurs? Absolutely not. That's Dang a, it. <laughs> <laughs> it, as cool and interesting as it would be, that's a waste of resource dollars that could go towards viable conservation. Right. Do I think that we should right our wrongs that humanity have committed, such as bringing back the passenger pigeon, replacing the thylacine in an environment that's absolutely overrun by mesopredators and smaller marsupials to the point that disease is becoming a massive problem? And, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Yes, I do. Now, I think one thing that we haven't mentioned today in our discussion is that this technology does not exist yet. Right. It, it, it's great in theory. There are people working on it, and, and I'm very grateful that they are because I'd love to see the thylacine back. I'd love to see the Carolina parakeet, the passenger pigeon, and again, the list goes on. But this technology, it doesn't actually exist I mean, yet. the closest we've gotten so far has been that gastric brooding frog experiment where they just started to get an embryo right. and then it self-terminated. No heartbeat. Right, yeah. no heartbeat didn't didn't last very long, right. but it's it's an encouraging step. That's not to demean what they're doing. It's Absolutely. very impressive. It's amazing. But yeah, like you said, it is not. We can't just like like you know take a dead passenger pigeon, like get a syringe full of genetic <laughs> material and plug it into their closest living relative, right. and you know. But it's it is possible. Certainly. It's just, I think it is important to stress that we cannot like it's it is still a huge deal when an animal goes extinct because we cannot just snap our fingers and be like oh we'll use science to bring exactly. it back to life because there's a lot of complications even once we get the technology reintroducing an animal especially one as highly social as a passenger pigeon is really complicated because yep. they may not know even how to act right because uh animals they do they are often born with a lot of instincts that's true but they also learn like birds are very social they learn yep. that's how bird song is learned they they have a crystallization period as juveniles where they learn songs and they incorporate it into their lexicon you know, if you it, it'd sort of be like if you if humans went extinct and you just dropped off a bunch of babies and be like, well, you got your <laughs> figure environment, it out. figure it yeah. out. Um, <laughs> and not only that, but my understanding, and this could be wrong because again, I'm not an actual expert in the genetics of de-extinction, is that you know all of these double helix, all the DNA degrade over mm -hmm. time. Right? That is true. Yeah. So when we're trying to bring an animal back, say it's the passenger pigeon, right? We look at our double helix, and there's these little pieces missing from it. So in order to create this animal, we have to pull those little pieces from its closest living relative and plug it into that DNA sequence, yeah. right, into that double helix. And then the offspring, although this is the case in nature because nothing is ever the same, right, no two right. organisms are identical, the offspring isn't a true passenger no. pigeon, nor is it, you know, its closest living relative. It is a slightly warped it's version. It's a facsimile, yeah. Yeah, it's a facsimile of the passenger pigeon. It's very, very close. It might be physically identical, but it, it will never be the truest form of what the animal right. once was. And then we have sort of the problem of genetic bottleneck, where once we bring back Certainly. one... What next? How do we how do we get a thriving population uh, from one sort of embryo and then right. like create a, enough genetic diversity that it isn't just wiped out by a virus as right. soon as we get like 10 individuals going? And, and we see that, you know, we see that genetic bottlenecking as an issue in wildlife sciences today, like yeah. before trying to bring it back from one species right. that we're cloning. Right. So um, it is a problem. Uh, you know, that being said, if we get to the point where the technology allows us to bring species back from the dead, we can probably tweak them enough that uh, yeah. there's a lot of them and a lot of I diversity. I hope so, yeah. I think. Yeah. Who knows? I, I mean, don't know. It's, it's got, there's got to be some way we can figure out how to overcome that those right. problems. But again, it's it's not 
it seems like we're really close, but the more you think about all of the problems, the more we you kind of realize how much technology has to advance for right. us to get there. And one of the, the reason the passenger pigeon may be important to bring back is that they are uh, engineers of the environment. Yep. So by pooping, eating seeds, and breaking branches by mass roosting, they actually are sort of gardeners of these these American forests. Right. So um, they're they kind of it's like a wildfire or a storm where you you know it's it's a little counterintuitive maybe, but you have there has to be some. Uh, veg- destruction of vegetation and of forest in order for it to keep growing. It's called the uh, the intermediate disturbance hypothesis. Mm. And what that means is a place that stays exactly static has very low diversity, right? Take tide pools, for instance. If you're a tide pool in an area where no waves ever hit it, one type of algae takes over the whole tide pool, one species. If you're in a tide pool area, an intertidal zone, where the waves are pounding it all day, every day, nothing can live there, right? It's too much disturbance. But if you're in the middle there, where sometimes you have a great tide pool and sometimes it gets a little hammered by waves, but new species can come in and colonize it and change the environment. You have massive, rich diversity, uh, species diversity. And that's, yeah, that's the intermediate dispersion. That's a great metaphor for how I interact with my own anxiety, where a little <laughs> bit is great, keeps me motivated too much, and I just lie on my bed. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so these pigeons are basically, you know, pooping, roosting, yeah. uh, gardeners of the forest. Also, their massive piles of guano, which is bird poop, fertilizer. Um, is fertilizer, creates these little microbiomes for decomposers. Uh, they provided a lot of meat for predators. Yeah. They provided meat for humans as well. Yeah. And I mean, we coexisted with them for 20,000 years. Right. And before we get into that, I mean, I think, you know, you you said earlier at some point during our discussion, you, you said, why care, right? It's a cynical look, but why care? Well, I think this is the fundamental thing that a lot of people don't digest and absorb is everything has a place in the ecosystem. Nothing evolves for no purpose, right? It doesn't come into this sphere, this environment, without a purpose. And everything's balanced within that. The passenger pigeon, as you're explaining, is a perfect example. When it was here, things were better because it was here, because of its presence, because of it being a docent of the forest, so to speak, and its fertilizer that it created, and it's breaking the branches and its intermediate disturbance, it created a healthier, better ecosystem. So why should we care? Why should we care if the thylacine's gone from Tasmania, if the passenger pigeon's gone from North America, and the list goes on? Because these creatures are meant to be here for the health of our environment. And that that goes you know, it goes much further than we even understand. There's a reason the gastric brooding frog was here. You know, more so than us discovering its its possible cure for stomach cancer, it, it may have played an incredibly vital role in its ecosystem that we don't even know about yet that could be leading or at least contributing to collapse. I mean, one of the sad things is there's there are animals who will probably go extinct that we don't even know Exist, existed, yeah. mm-hmm. who go extinct that we have no idea what they were, what they did, and then we may there may be some ramification that we're like, huh, why is this happening? And we'll have no idea. And it's too late. And it's too late. 2,000 species a year <sighs> are being deemed extinct. Yeah. Uh, and, well, one of the direct things that may possibly have resulted from the passenger pigeon going extinct is the uh, prevalence of Lyme disease yep. because they... I mean, this is a counterintuitive thing, again, because their existence um, decreased the white-footed mouse's population, not because they were predators, but because they were competitors. They kept the white-footed mouse population in check, and so after the passenger pigeons went extinct, the white-footed mouse population kind of exploded, Right. and then they are carriers of Lyme-riddled 
ticks and now Lyme disease is a much prevalent yes much more prevalent much Mm -hmm. bigger problem and Lyme disease is awful for humans awful for animals as well but uh, that's a I mean and that's just the extremely direct easily identifiable problem that happens and there are so many other it's like a Jenga tower made out of animals where you take one block out and like it looks like the tower's fine you're like oh it's fine I mean it's still standing but the more you take out and then suddenly it's just like this collapse that is a wonderful analogy I'm gonna steal that (laughs) I've never thought of it as a Jenga tower that's so clever and I've tried to explain this to so many people how important each piece is and the Jenga tower is the perfect analogy it's a it's great because from my childhood of never winning Jenga is uh (laughs) (laughs) has inspired me to be educate people via the metaphor of jenga that's great that's really clever (laughs) so i want to talk a little bit about some of the animals that you're trying to rediscover one of them is okay so uh, a lot of these i don't actually know that much about so i'm hoping you can tell me sure the dwarf hippo is one Uh I, i mean i've seen pictures of them they're cute. So you've seen pictures of the pygmy hippo. The pygmy hippo. I'm sorry, yes. For a dwarf, dwarf hippo. hippo. Mm-hmm. Different species, right? Indeed. Where is this this little hippo found? So the pygmy hippo is a very tiny species of hippo that's kind of a hybrid between a pig and a hippo that occurred in Central Africa. Oh wow. The I say pig and a hippo because of the size and behavior. It still right. looked like a hippo. And you've said, as you right. say, you've seen pictures. It's not an actual, like, it's not an actual crossbreeding between no, a pig no, and no, a No, 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 no. Yeah, sorry. Let me be clear. No, yeah. no. It, it behaves a bit more the way that a pig would, but it's just a tiny hippo. Now, the Southern African hippo, the hippo that we all know and think of as hungry, hungry hippos, <laughs> they had an offshoot of their species the same way many, many animals had offshoots of their species on the island of Madagascar. And this was the pig, sorry, the dwarf hippo. And that was literally a dwarfed African hippo. So imagine your African hippo, the one that we all know, that just got shrunken down through insular dwarfism. (laughs) Now, insular dwarfism is a case where animals get stuck on an island. There's not enough resources for them to be the size that they've historically been. So over generations of you know, restricted diets and, and small habitats, they've got smaller and smaller and smaller. It's like the opposite of deep sea gigantism. Exactly. That's exactly right. It is the opposite of deep sea gigantism, insular dwarfism. There's also insular gigantism, but we won't talk about that right now. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so on the island of Madagascar, the theory is that, you know, many, many years ago when sea levels were lower, uh, a couple of hippos made the long swim across the channel from Mozambique to Madagascar, got stuck there. Um, started reproducing, found out, hey, this isn't a really great place to be a hippo, and I'm pretty hungry, so I'm getting smaller and smaller and getting more and more terrestrial, staying out of the water, especially because the western coast of Madagascar, where they first populated, was very dry. There wasn't a lot of rivers and streams. Anyway, this is a long-winded way of explaining (laughs) how they got to Madagascar. I got to Madagascar on a big shiny metal bird called an airplane to go Mm -hmm. and search for them, and... uh, you know, I'm not going to say whether we were successful or not. Or not. You're going to have to watch the show, you guys. <laughs> You're going to have to watch. It's a, it's a very difficult expedition in a very remote, very harsh region. Um, we have some close calls, and we do uncover some very interesting science. Yes, I mean this. I'm I'm very excited about your new season because there are so many really interesting animals that you guys are looking at. Um, of course, I. I know the outcome of the Fernandina tortoise and the mm-hmm. Dracula monkey, but there's so many. You're looking for Cape lions, the Caribbean mm-hmm. monk seal, the uh, ivory-billed woodpecker. Uh, so there's and species I've never heard of, like the southern Rocky Mountain wolf, mm-hmm. uh, the saola, which is some. We love cute deer on this show. Yeah, cute <laughs> deer, like or or any kind of cute tiny ungulate. We we have a running 
thing where it's like we like dick dick pick picks here. Yeah, great, uh, great. Um, so I really I'm I'm wishing the best of luck to you to find the, these. The Sala, these, yeah, yeah. Thank you. And I'm just I'm just curious because of what you've been through with uh, getting stung by bees and uh, <laughs> climbing up trees in, in a ghillie suit for hours. Uh, what's like the most danger you've been in during your explorations of the world? Like, my goodness, was where it, do was I begin? It, was it heat stroke when you're on Glass Island? <laughs> No, I mean, that sucks, but I never thought we were going to die. You know, this scar right here, that's from a shark bite Oof. from the show this year. Um, you know, but the thing that I tell people, and keep in mind, I've been in two plane crashes. I've been bitten by a shark, stung by a man of war jellyfish, stung by a stingray. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Mold by a lion, the list goes on. I've had a lot of these run-ins. But the thing that I try and tell people is the wildlife, first of all, is never to blame. But secondly, is not the dangerous thing. The dangerous element is the people in some of these places. And a perfect example of that is uh, in April of this year, we chartered a World War II DC-3 cargo plane to fly into a private cocaine dealer's airstrip in the middle of the Colombian Amazon. Interesting. To to hide from the FARC rebels who were fighting the Colombian government to search for an extinct crocodilian. So, you know, am I worried about the anacondas we encountered or the caiman species that we were targeting that, that have notoriously or have historically eaten people? Not even a little bit. My mind was on the FARC rebels that grow and, and smuggle cocaine out of the jungle and how they have made a lot of their money on kidnapping. And the last expedition of Westerners to go into there 30 years ago all got kidnapped. So to me, the dangers come from the human element, not from the wild element. In a way, animals, I think, are a little more predictable, uh, predictable <laughs> than humans. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad glad you're all right. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that people think about animals as being scary, like a shark being f- terrifying. But I mean, I, 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 that scar, it's, it's a pretty cool scar, it's but you're not fine. That bad. But yeah, you're fine. Exactly right. Uh, and, and I think that it's, you know, we're not only more of a threat to each other, we're much more of a threat to the animals than they ever are to us. million times over. Uh, so what's, uh, just as we conclude here, uh, what's an animal that you wish more people knew about that you want to tell my listeners about? Ooh. Well, you mentioned the Sala. Mm-hmm. This is a fascinating species. Oh, let's it. do it because uh, they love they love cute deer. Right. Let's, we love cute deer Let's here. get a mental <laughs> pick-pick of this yes. non-dick-dick. Um, <laughs> so, okay, the Sala is a fascinating animal. It's the most recently discovered large animal. It was only discovered in 95? I have to double-check that. But it is known as the Asian unicorn. And the reason it's known as the Asian cu- unicorn is it has such a striking symmetrical profile then when looking at it sideways, the horns visually merge into one to look like it has a single horn, like a unicorn. This is an incredible animal. It's a bovid, meaning a, fam- a member of the cattle family, uh, only, like I said, recently discovered in, in Laos and Vietnam in the Ammonite Mountains, which is an incredibly rich biodiverse area. Huge animal, you know, talking about a 100-plus pound creature. Yeah. Uh, and it's got a fascinating story about the only one that was ever cap- captured. It was captured alive for a Laotian, crazy wealthy Laotian king who was a collector of wild animals. And when it died, they ate it. They didn't even oh. preserve the specimen. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, just the story is, it, it, it's mind-blowing. Where it lives is insane. And I think more importantly, aside from it being an incredibly beautiful, unique creature, it's its own genus, meaning it doesn't even really have any close relatives except for the cattle, the bovid family, has sink glands on its face that it rubs on the trees. I mean, just such a unique creature. But it, it lives in an area 
that is desperate for conservation and the Laotian mountains on the border of Vietnam where everything's on the menu for human beings and it's been war-torn for a number of years and it's it's just not only is it a beautiful animal not only is it recently discovered it could be extinct I don't believe that it is uh, but it's an animal that lives in an area that needs attention and exposure yeah it's a it's a really beautiful animal it looks uh, I I only speak in terms of the vocabulary of animals that I know so it looks like a mix between like an ibex, a cow, and a deer. That's pretty accurate. Yeah, <laughs> with, with with painted markings with, that don't resemble anything. With white spots on its face, which are curious. I wonder what those are for. I'm sure we don't exactly know. We do not know. Um, but yeah, and, and they're beautiful, kind of mahogany color. They're gorgeous. Um, yeah, please please do look up pictures of these. It's the Sol- Saola. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, and they are, they're gorgeous. So that's another ungulate. They're not a deer, but they are an ungulate. Correct. They are a cute ungulate to, uh, to include into our library of cute ungulates that we love on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been incredibly illuminating. Uh, I am just so... Uh, I love the work that you do. Uh, uh, and guys, please do check out the show. It's called Extinct or Alive, right? And where, yep. where can they catch that? Uh, Extinct or Alive, currently airing on Wednesdays on Animal Planet at 9 p.m. Super family friendly. You know, there's nothing bad in it. It's uh, it's very adventure driven. It follows me on these journeys as I get stung by bees, bitten by <laughs> sharks, flying in World War II planes to look for these animals that I believe have been wrongfully deemed extinct. Yeah, that that's fascinating, and it is really it's it's really intense because we're, I love watching you as you're like going through all of your forest cams looking mm-hmm. for it, and you're just on the edge of your seat hoping that you, yeah. <laughs> that you get that get that sighting. Can people find you online or? Yeah, yeah, I have you know all the regular social channels. My name Forrest Galante. It's Forrest with two R's, G A L A N T E. I have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And, and I, uh, you know, I see everybody's messages. I really do. I look at everything because people are sending me uh, instances of rare animal sightings. So by all means, please follow me, hang out. I'd love to chat with you about wildlife. Yeah, if you if you see something, say something, especially to, to Forrest here. Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> um, yeah, you can find us, as always, on the internet, uh, www. No, I'm not going to do the whole thing. <laughs> CreatureFeaturePod.com, CreatureFeaturePod on Instagram, where you can mostly see pictures of my dog. Uh, <laughs> CreatureFeetPod on Twitter, that's F-E-A-T. F-E-E-T is something very different. <laughs> you can find me at Katie Golden on Twitter, and I am also at ProBirdRights, where I advance the cause of birds throughout the greater United States uh, and mostly advocate for avian complete control of the world. But anyways... Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a good good activism. <laughs> Bird overlords. Bird overlords. I mean, I for one welcome them. <laughs> Thanks to the Space Cossacks for their totally tubular tune, Ex Illumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.